All right, hey, everybody. My voice is a lot. No, I'm just kidding. I'm fine now. <laughs> just interrupted my joke. What? What is it, Alex? You know, I was really in, it was going to be a, like a two-minute bit I had planned, but Alex wanted to hawk his eggs, so if you want to get a bushel or whatever they're called, he's got eggs back Whatever, it doesn't matter. Joke's ruined now. Everybody go home, I don't even feel like teaching anymore. All right, we are in Revelation chapter 15. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 15. All right, there's, um, Revelation 15 is a short chapter. Uh, it's, it serves almost like a uh, prelude, almost like an introduction to what's coming in chapter 16. Um, I don't know why those who, you know, took the whole text of the book and put it into chapters and verses, why they separated it like this, because it really just, it's all part of chapter 16. This is just like, this is like chapter 16a. And chapter 16 is chapter 16b. It's, it's all part of the same thing. So we're going to get through 15 this evening and just spill right into 16 without any kind of a break at all because there's not really meant to be one. You're going to see how it naturally leads into it uh, as we go through it. I would remind us all where we, where we ended last week at the end of chapter 14 was we got this picture of Jesus uh, very similar to how he is depicted. And I made reference to this then. Isaiah, I think it's chapter 63. When Isaiah the prophet sees what essentially is uh, God in a, his robes are covered in scarlet colored, but they're not dyed, they're not painted, they are covered because it's his enemies that he has gone defeating. He's trampled out the wine press of his wrath against his enemies. And so that image is kind of lifted by John the Revelator and put into this book as he talks about the winepress of God, how he is taking the grapes of wrath, which is where the phrase comes from in the book, uh, and he um, stamp out his vengeance on his enemies. That, that image is where we leave things off in chapter 14. And I'm just, I'm in the role too, and everyone's like, we should continue that, because 14 ends almost where I want to know more about this, he's... He sends everyone to harvest and gather the grapes. He's stomping up the grapes, and he's very angry. Okay, well, how is he going to... It feels like he's, he's rearing back for just the mother of all sucker punches, and then everything just kind of backs up. Well, it's because you've got to remember when you're in Revelation, you're not reading like a prophecy like we would think of a prophecy, where it's like, all right, here's the chronological order of on Monday, and then on Tuesday it'll be this, then Wednesday this, and Thursday that. That's not how Revelation is. Revelation is written kind of in ways where you get this wave, almost like, like I've said many times in this class, like a play. So the curtains pull back, and you watch the scene, and the curtains draw, and the curtains pull back, and you watch the scene again. It's a different scene. It tells you something else. And it just it conveys a different aspect of the overall idea of the book, which is the victory we have in Jesus over our enemy, the devil, and his minions, in this context, the Roman Empire, against the first century church. So you're watching these various scenes play out, and you can't read them like, okay, well, 15 follows 14, so what I'm reading about at 15 is the continuation necessarily of 14. It's not always like that. It doesn't always work that way. What you read in 14 at the end of it, that whole idea of the wrath and the grapes and the stomping and the, the vengeance of God is just kind of the big picture idea. And then we zoom out, and we're going to look and see how does God execute that? How does he play that out against the Roman Empire over the course of what will, according to history, be a couple hundred years of the destabilization and ultimate overthrow of uh, the, the enemy of the church in the first century. So don't look at it like, okay, so are we still, is there still a guy stomping out grapes in 15-1? No. The curtains are drawn, the curtains have pulled back, now it's a new scene, all right? Verse, 15, verse 1 of chapter 15. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, sorry, having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Chapter 15, as I said, is very short, but it has two very specific ideas in it. First, it has a song of victory, and we'll see that in just a couple of verses, and then the second half of the chapter, it has the holy smokes of God's wrath, and you'll see why it's called that as we get to it. 
But first, look at the beginning of the verse. John says, I saw another sign in heaven. And if you've been going through the book, in this case, yes, you'll get some chronological time. If you remember way back, I guess it was chapter 12, John saw two signs in heaven. He saw the sign, the constellation, the image in heaven of a woman and the dragon. So he saw two grand, grand spectacles. Well, now he's seeing another one. So you have these two images presented to us first, and now in this chapter we're getting a third image. Over here in chapter 12, you get the image of a woman, which as we illustrated it, as we drew application from it, in my opinion, that whole image from chapter 12 is a picture of Christ creating the church and it being persecuted by uh, the devil through the Roman Empire. That's the woman and that's the dragon. You have good on one side, you have evil on the other. Well, what stands in between good and evil? Here's this third image he's going to see. And if you were to see them all laid out like a vista, you have this one image over here and this one image over here, and you have an image in the middle. What stands in the middle between good and bad? What stands in the middle between righteous and unrighteous? It is justice. Justice is what determines what is good and what is right. Good and what is bad, right and wrong. Justice is where you fall on one side of it or the other. Righteousness, one side of it or the other. The justice and righteousness and the, the decision-making of God that determine, yes, this is what is good and this is what is bad. That's what's in the middle, and that's what he's going to be seeing here. He sees this other sign in heaven. He says it is great, huge, and marvelous. To see it is to be marveled, to be awe-inspired by. And what is it he sees? Seven angels, and they're going to be dispensing seven justices. Seven acts of righteous justice. The things we're going to read in chapter 16 when these seven angels do their work are going to be very, I almost said the word bad. It depends on your perspective. If I'm Rome, if I'm the enemy of God, they're going to be very, very bad. They're going to hurt. The, the word blood and death and suffering are just all over the place. But if you're on God's side, what you're seeing is not an act of evil perpetrated by God. What you're seeing is an act of justice. You're seeing an act of righteousness. So justice and righteousness is in the middle between good and bad, but it always sides with good because that's what defines what good is. And it says this is the dividing line, and you're on that side of it, that which is evil. So that's what he's, he's got here. He's, he's rounding up these seven angels, and they have with them the seven last plagues, the final um, blow, blows, seven of them, that God is going to deal against the Roman Empire. For in them is filled up, in what is filled up? We'll find out in a second, the wrath of God. Now go to verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them which had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, Stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Sea of glass was first seen in chapter 4 when John was describing what the picture of, uh, the, picture of the surrounding of God's throne was like. And he was try, trying to describe it as a serene scene, as a scene of peace and calmness. So he just, it's, it's still as glass, no disturbance. Do you, you have something, Tommy? Oh, you're scratching your nose. A sea of calmness, a sea of just stillness, all right? Now here we are again, we're See, but you've got to remember, we just read verse 1. He's rounding up a mini army to go carry out wrath. And that just, it conjures up this feeling and these ideas of chaos and mayhem. But in heaven, where these orders of justice are being sent out, you go punish, you go punish, you go punish. In heaven, everything is calm. Everything is peaceful. It's a sea of glass. Because God has already won this war. He's just letting the losers know what's the checks in the mail. So he sees this sea of glass mingled with fire. Fire is a scary thing anywhere but in Revelation. In Revelation, it's a symbol of purification. Of, again, the dividing between what is impure and what is pure. It goes in impure, goes through the fire, comes out pure. Very perfect illustration for the scene that he's seeing here. And them which had gotten, this is what he sees, he sees them which had gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. Those are four things that if you've been reading Revelation thus far, you're very familiar with because we've been talking about those in the prior chapters. The beast is the devil, and his mark and his image is those things which he is compelling people to submit to in order to, to serve him versus God. In the context of the Roman Empire, you must worship the emperor. You must worship the Caesar if you want to have the right to buy and sell and uh, basically live in society. And so that, those people who won their victory over that by not submitting to it, how did they win their victory? When they didn't submit to the empire's demands, they were killed by the empire. 
So these people who are victors are people who were killed. These are dead heroes. These are dead champions. These are dead winners. Because in Christianity, it's the dead who win. Because when you kill me, I go live with God. So these people who had all these victories over these various aspects of the devil and his servant, the Roman Empire, that's what John sees. And they're all standing on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Are they literal harps? Are they literal pieces of wood and cat guts? Well, is heaven literally made of glass? No, it's not literal. It's designed to conjure up an image of glass, sea of peace, tranquility, the, the gentle strumming of a harp conjures up the same idea. Verse 3. And since they have victory, what does one do with victory? Is anyone merry? Not the lady, M-E-R-R-Y. Is anyone merry? Let them what? Sing songs, James says. So what do these victors do? These people who have won because they've died. What do they do? Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. They sing the song <coughs> excuse me, of the Lamb, saying, these are the lyrics, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. The song of Moses, as we know it in that terminology, comes to us first in Exodus chapter 14. It's, it's the song of victory the Israelites sang after the Exodus. This was their song of victory over their tyrannical, um, conquering, enslaving ruler of darkness. And they sang it in honor of their Moses, their champion, their hero, their guy who showed up with just the right thing to do at just the right time to do it to save them from their dark fate. That's their song of Moses. Have it. Our song is of a new Moses. Our song is of the new lamb. That song of Moses was the song of the literal old Moses. Their song of the lamb was a song of an actual Passover lamb, an actual animal that was sacrificed as blood covered on the door for the Passover plague. Well, this is our song of our Moses, who was our Christ, who gave us our law, who gave us our exodus from the Pharaoh of Satan, from the bondage of sin. This is the song of our Moses and the song of our Lamb, who happens to be the same Jesus. He is our Passover Lamb, whose blood covers us and gives us the victory over death. So this is our song of Moses, our servant of God, our song of the Lamb. About Him, not about the old Moses, about Jesus we sing, great and marvelous are your works. The things that you've done for us, not Moses. Great and marvelous are your works, Jesus, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the saints. Very important that they say this in terms of segueing into what's coming next. Because as I said a minute ago, we're going to have seven angels dispensing seven rounds of justice, and it's going to be harsh. It's, it's a harsh dispensing of justice. But the reminder is, everything that happens to Rome is good, righteous, just, and true. It's not bad because God's doing it. It's not evil. It's righteous. It is not unfair. It is just. It is not improperly administered. It is true, sound, whole. And so because of that and because of what he has going to do to our enemies, we praise God. We praise him because he is our king. He's our Caesar that we will bow to. Our king of the saints, the emperor of our hearts, the spiritual Caesar of our redemption. Verse 4. Continue with the song. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments are made manifest. When you consider all that God has done, all that God is doing, and all that God is going to do, specifically in this context, to those who have opposed us and who have hurt us and who are trying to kill us and even succeeded, these people singing, succeeded in killing us. And I think God will take his vengeance on my behalf for me against them. Why would I not want to serve a God? Why would I not want to fall into the arms Champion, my knight in shining armor. Who should not fear, the word is, but it means revere. Who should not just want to fall down and kiss his toes? Him, O Lord. And glorify, lift up, esteem higher than oneself. Glorify his name. He is holy. There's none like him. He is the savior of all nations, inviting them all to worship him. He's inclusive and inviting. And it says his judgments are made manifest. He is 
honest. His judgments, his renderings of his verdicts and the punishment that follows are for all to see and know. In other words, they were warned ahead of time, are carried out, and then told afterward is why it happened. Look at verse 5. After that, I looked. This is John speaking now. So he's heard the song of victory. And by the way, if you want to connect 14 to 15, you can. I, I see 15 more as the lead into 16, but if you want to see it as a bridge between the two, that's fine. Just look at it this way. You just got through at the end of chapter 14 seeing Jesus squashing those grapes of wrath and preparing to unleash his vengeance on his enemies. Well, look after the fact, or look from the perspective of these dead saints. They know the, the, the ball has started. The ball has started rolling down the hill. It's not going to be stopped. In fact, we'll make that point in a little bit. Um, and so they're, they're just prematurely celebrating, if you want to see it that way. I just think that's too convoluted, so I look at it as the prelude to 16 more than the postscript to 15, or to 14, rather. Anyway, look at 15, verse 5. After that I looked, and behold, the, the King James says, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Does your Bible say something like that? Temple of the tabernacle of the testimony? You're the sanctuary of the tent. You can see how that's basically the same thing. Yeah. In other words, you don't just get what you usually get in Revelation. In Revelation, m- multiple times John would say, and out of the temple I saw this. Or out of the temple I heard this. Or next to the temple I saw that. Or from under the altar which was by the temple I heard. It's always just the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. But here he doesn't give you the temple. He gives you the tabernacle. Oh, I'm running out of ink. He gives you the tabernacle of the temple of the or the temple of the tabernacle, I think is the order. Sorry. Yeah. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. So you get three T words in my translation, which just fits with my literary, alliteration loving brain. So you get the temple. You get the, the word commonly used in this book to denote the dwelling place of God. Okay? Even though God is everywhere in Revelation, he's very specifically denoted as separate from the earth because he's doing all these things to the earth. There's all this stuff happening on the earth, and God is above all that in his temple where all these things are coming from and being sent out from and, and being heard from. So you have the temple. You have just the overall dwelling place of God. But within that is, not even going to try, tabernacle. You have the, the word in the Bible that is specifically used to describe the, the, the location that moved around whenever the Israelites needed to converse with God and have a relationship with God. Not just this abstract idea of God lives in a place that's separate from us, but this place where God and us can come together, where heaven and earth can meet, where it can go into this place. And I know that's what the temple was on earth, but in Revelation, temple is used more than tabernacle. Temple has its own kind of meaning in this book. It's got its own little game it's playing. Tabernacle is this brand new thing. So we can use tabernacle the way it's used in the Old Testament as now it's being introduced in Revelation. So how is it used in the Old Testament? Tabernacle is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God and the people can, can coexist, come together, and converse in, through the high priest of Israel. So you have this overall place where God is, but then zoom in a little bit, and you have this place where heaven and earth come together. And then there, even closer than that, is the testimony, the, the word spoken. If you were to just look at all of creation, <clears throat> you'd, you'd be God. You could see it all. But then you zoom in to the tabernacle, the place where you come down to converse with the people if you're God. And then you zoom into the tabernacle there in the most holy place where you actually sit on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. <coughs> excuse me. And, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not sick. It's the laryngitis. And you converse with the people. <coughs> there it is again. It sounds like I'm, I'm hinting at something. I'm not. <coughs> it's just laryngitis. So it, in the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments. It is the, the terms and conditions of your relationship with God. In other words, what John did with this one expression, kind of, kind of convoluted in this phrasing, all right, kind of overly wordy, but he could have he just said temple. But as we go through this, thank you, Mark. As we go through this, he's going to talk about priestly things. And so it made sense for him, I think, to introduce the idea of the tabernacle. But he has to do it in a way that doesn't make it separate from the temple. It makes it part of the whole family. And so he, he kind of builds this, Manushka doll, Matryoshka doll, you know, the Russian dolls with the dolls thing. 
And so he says, you've got the temple, but then there's also the tabernacle. And in that is where the word of God is stored. And it's the word of God that's being sent out. And the word of God is being sent out in this context in the, in the uh, form of these seven angels sending out their seven dis- dispensations of justice. So the tabernacle of the, sorry, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony of God's justice. So he's laying out the outline of chapter 16 here in this one verse. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter. Because <clears throat> it's just one little verse. Go to verse 6. And seven angels came out of the temple. See, he doesn't say tabernacle. He's introduced the concept, and he zooms in. And seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. The King James says, think of it like a breastplate. This is the angelic breastplate of righteousness that they're wearing. But the the thing about Revelation, when you read this book, and whenever it introduces things like clothing or hair color, or in the case of Jesus early in the book, that his feet are made of bronze, you see things like that, don't, I, I know you can't help but visualize it, but you have to see beyond the visual to the purpose. Why is it telling me that it is a golden breastplate? Why is it telling me that the robes are white? I mean, we've already known by reading past Old Testament and New Testament scripture that angels wear white clothing. So why is it here? Right? He could have just said, I saw an angel, as he does multiple times. He doesn't say throughout this book, I saw an angel clothed in white. Here he says, I see an angel clothed in white. So why is he telling me now the angel is white? Because he wants me to draw from that something about whiteness, as the Bible uses it, which is purity, unspottedness, unstained. It's, it's colorless, clean. So this is, this is an angel. But it's, don't, I don't want you to think, okay, I'm supposed to think the angel is clean. No. What is the angel doing that's what's clean here. That's what's pure. The angel, what is the angel wearing? He's wearing a golden, majestic, um, a kingly, royal color. And he's carrying out this divine action. It's not about the angel. What he's wearing is supposed to draw your attention to what he's about to do. And your mind is supposed to make that connection. What's about to happen is something that is royal, majestic, divine, divine, and pure. This is what God is doing, and it is right. You have to emphasize that, because when you get to chapter 16 and you read some of the things that God's about to do to Rome, you're going to you know, recoil a bit and say, I'm, I'm, this is a little bit, this is, this is some heavy stuff, but it is righteous what's being done. He's going to bring pain and misery. It's going to hurt, but it's righteous, because these are your enemies. Verse 7, and one of the four beasts, and that goes all the way back to chapter 4, when we first met these guys. We first saw the throne of God, and we see these four beasts, the, the head of the lion, the man, the, the eagle, so forth. Uh, one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven, the King James says, vials full of the wrath of God who live forever and ever. If you remember earlier in this chapter, it said they're full of the wrath of God. And we say, well, what, what, are, they, what are they carrying the wrath in? It's full. What, what is it full with? It's full of these vials, a word which just means... Well, that's, this thing's no help. That looks like a pistachio. It's, a, it's like a walk. It's like a really big, shallow basin. Okay? Think of, so think of it that way. Uh, think of just carrying this big, shallow bowl. King James says, vile. Your Bible might say bowl. Uh, so, yeah, th- th- so they've got these containers, and in this container is like you would have incense in. The, the little um, uh, things that you would set on fire and you'd burn, the smoke would rise up and it'd be aromatic. So this is the incense, th- the the... Um, execution of God's judgment against Rome is going to be depicted here in this play of Revelation chapter 15 and 16. In the form of angels full of incense that they're going to set on fire, the smoke's going to stir up, and they're going to pour out the incense on the earth. And it's going to convert itself into some dramatic big spectacle that's going to hurt in a lot of different ways. So this is the, the holy smokes of God's wrath against Rome. And that's what he's depicting here. The, angel, the, the beasts have these seven vials Full of the wrath of God. This is all his anger that you saw in the previous chapter. It's going to be let loose here through the pouring out of these bowls. Verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Again, well, I already... You have the whole big spectacle. You introduce the tabernacle, it's got to be smaller, it's specific. But the whole scene is here. John, John is like standing here. This is John. 
And then you got the throne in the middle, which is where the Ark of the Covenant would be if you were looking at it like that. That's where God is. There's all the elders and the angels surrounding it, as we've seen multiple times throughout this book. And you have now seven angels, and one of the four beasts that surround it have given all the bowls. That's where he's, this is where he's at. Earth is way down here, if you're looking at it like that. And one of these angels is one at a time going to fly down and pour out their, their wrath on the earth. So this is John's vantage point as he's riding what he's riding. This may be nothing to you, but it helps me to understand. I have to visualize, or I cannot understand it. So he specifies the temple because he's in the big scene. It's all filled, all covered up with the smoke from the glory of God, from the incense that's burning, that's about to be poured out, and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So he's writing this, of course, after the fact. And he's telling us, but as this, this whole process started to happen, nobody was able to go in and come out. It was locked down. The angels are going to go in or go out and do their thing. But nobody's going to be able to do anything else until this whole thing is over. What is, what is the significance of that? Why tell me that? That no one is doing any business in the temple. No, everything's shut down until this is done. I think it means this. God is going to do his thing. And nobody is going to come into God's presence and entreat him to stop. Nobody's going to interrupt the process. The ball has started rolling. The, um, <clears throat> the, the cake has been baked. This is it. Rome has had their chance. They have been begged to repent. They have been pleaded with by God's prophets, his apostles and Christians. And they have stayed an evil and ruined society. And they have persecuted the church. No matter how many times they were pleaded with and, and, and preached to, they have planted their feet in the paths of, of evil. And so God has said, that's it. You're going to be destroyed. Nobody's changing my mind. The wheel is in motion. That's it. Nobody come in here and try to stop me. We're locking heaven down. We're sending out the angels. And there's a precedent for that. In the book of Isaiah, we read this idea multiple times throughout the first half of the book. Uh, the first half of the first half, which Isaiah is pleading with his people to repent and begging for them to repent, Judah, of their many sins, promising them that if they don't, God will send punishment. If they do, God will redeem them. But eventually, it just you start to realize Judah's not going to repent. And it gets to the point where God tells them, you know what, at this point, even if you do repent, Babylon is still coming. There's nothing you're going to do to stop it. That cake is already baked. It's already going to happen. The wheel is in motion. Now you can repent and I will forgive, but the consequences of your actions are coming to bite you. And that's just, that's just precedent. Sin has consequences of a heavenly and an earthly kind. And when I sin, I can get forgiveness from my father, but sometimes you still got to pay the piper. You still got to pay the price. And so that's what, you, that's, that's what I think it means when it says, no man is coming in here. This is, we're locking it down because what's going to be happening is what's going to happen. That's the end of the chapter. So you see how it's just a setup. It's just a building, building, building until God says, all right, it's time to do this. All right. Verse number one of chapter 16. And John's writing, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. In the previous two chapters, we've been told about them. They were alluded to in 14, definitely brought up in 15. And now we're going to see the execution. God's voice booms out of the temple and he gives us instruction. And he says, one by one, go send out your punishment. You've got them contained there. It's your incense Set it on fire, let it start smoking, and pour it out. The whole rest of the chapter is going to be devoted to um, watching the results of each one of these one by one being poured out. And it's, like I say, you have to view Revelation from two layers in. You see the one thing, understand what it means, and then say, now what's the application? Don't flip those around, don't try to learn the application until you get the gist of it, but don't just stop with the gist of it. Because you need the application too, because that's what the Christians are having to learn from all this. Okay. There are in this in this chapter there are seven obviously uh, executions of wrath. Four of them affect nature specifically. The after effect hurts the people, but they're targeting nature: the earth, the sea, the river, and the sun. In the first four, the last three affect the sinners in particular. It's a direct attack against the evil people. The throne of the beast is attacked. The Euphrates River and the air. Uh, are the other three that are mentioned. We'll get to those later. Now, look at verse 2. Read what it says. And the first angel went and poured out his 
bowl, if you will, upon the earth. And there fell a, the King James says, noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. So you see who is, who is the, um, who, who gets the punishment. But what is actually targeted, it says he poured it out onto the earth. And from the earth comes the punishment that springs out and hurts these people. And the way it hurts them is described like this. The King James calls it a noisome and grievous Sores, noisome is kekos in the Greek. It means there's nothing good about this. That's what it means. Like there's not a smidgen of happiness that comes with this. It's all the way bad, totally harmful. Um, this completely bad and grievous, just utter painful. So think of it like just boils and ulcers, kind of like what happened to Job uh, early in his book. This boils and ulcers, weeping and, and, and or pains. That come over your body. Just start popping up everywhere. Who suffers this plague? It tells you in the verse. Those who bow down to the emperor. And accept his mark of ownership. Essentially. Those who pledge their allegiance to Caesar. And not to God. They're the ones who gave up. Whether that is the Romans who did it willingly. Whether that's the Christians who did it coercively. It's those who yielded their allegiance to the, to the empire. And to the emperor in particular. They're going to suffer. Verse 3. The second angel comes. And pours out his vial upon the sea. And it became as the blood of a dead man, the sea did. And every living soul died in the sea. Again, it doesn't target every living soul in the sea. It targets the sea. The result is every living soul dies. A plague of blood. That was one of the plagues that Moses brought to Egypt. I wonder if maybe that's the, the reason that's mentioned here. But I think there's, it's more to it than just drawing Old Testament imagery. The plague is not blood. It says specifically that it was like the blood of a dead man. Now, why it is the blood of a dead man and not the blood of a living man? Like, what is the difference there? I don't know. It is, I don't even want to, do I want to ask that question? No, you see me after. All right. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know either if there is some specific prophecy in particular that's being addressed. A few of these I can say, hey, that looks like a prophecy about this or that. But this I'm not sure yet. I just think what, it's, what it, we're getting here is very similar to the first one. You target the land, and then you target the sea. So you target the totality with one and the other. And as you target the sea, you're targeting every living thing that lives uh, in the sea. So God is striking down at nature, and the after effect is everyone who, is, uh, who enjoys the benefits of nature. But look how that continues, that same theme, verse 4. The third angel pours out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. It doesn't say it became like blood. It could be that's, I'm supposed to take that implication. But it just says they became blood. I do wonder, and this is just me wondering. I'll ask when I get to heaven. Um, it's way down on my list, but I'll, I'll get to it eventually. Why, why is there one angel devoted to one kind of body of water? And one angel in this verse devoted to two different kinds of bodies of water? Because in the previous one you had the sea. But in this verse you see you have rivers and fountains. So why not, why not one angel for all three of those? Or why not three angels for one of each of those? It does not say. I, I wonder if it's because, and here's what I think. When you think of sea, the sea, in an apocalyptic setting or in a poetic setting, typically that is used to describe uh, a body of water for travel or methods of traversing. I know you can travel by way of a river, but in poetic writing, in apocalyptic writing, rivers are used to describe uh, either peace or unpeace. If a river is calm or turbulent, it describes the state of per a person and their, their state of calmness or lack thereof. A sea, you don't get that kind of connotation. Sea is used to describe travel and things. And so here you had in the previous one, um, maybe the people who, uh, if you're watching this like a movie, if you're watching this like a play, the curtains pull back and you're watching this angel come down and strike the land, and all these people have their boils and all these people are suffering and dying, and some people just say... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here. I'm going to get as far away as I can. I'm going to be like Jonah. I'm going to get to a boat. I'm going to take to the sea. I'm going to sail away. Well, you could try, but sooner or later, God will find you there too. You know, God is not suddenly wondering, weren't there more people here? Oh, no, they're in the water. I can't get... No. If, you, if he can get you there, he can get you there. So if you try to flee to the sea, he's going to strike you down there as well. So once that's done, now he moves on to a different category, which is the, the tranquility of the people, the at-easeness of the people by striking at the rivers and the fountains. 
the, the, how peaceful are they and what is the bounty? What is the, the, uh, the fountains are used in apocalyptic and poetic writings to describe an overabundance of blessings. So he's going to strike at the prosperity of Rome, strike at the peacefulness of Rome. Because Rome, though they were an evil and wicked and warfaring people, when things were rolling within the borders of the empire, all the wars were happening way on the outskirts as they were expanding their empire. In the inside, everything was fine. I mean, the people were starving and dying. It was not fine at all. But, like, nobody was just, you know, dying in terms of warfare. It wasn't like that. But that's all going to be upended very soon. Okay? Verse 5, and I heard the angel of the waters, I take, that to be, I take that to mean the verse previous, that angel, angel number 3. I heard the angel of the waters say, quote, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, past, present, future, because you have judged thus. In other words, we have now three of the seven down, almost half. And this one who is struck down against the rivers and the fountains pauses after he's watched the devastation. He's watched the ultimate destruction laid out before him. And his response is not to gasp. His response is not to draw back. I mean, to see utter devastation. His response is to say, good on you, God. This was the right thing to do. That's the angel's response. You are righteous, O Lord. That's not just a general state of holiness. That is a, a specific reference to his actions are judged and found good. God judges himself, and he always finds himself not guilty. Go figure. Because he never does anything wrong. So this is the angel recognizing that. Look at this. Look at the utter devastation the three of us, these three angels, have caused. Good job, God. I say that with no sarcasm. This needed to happen, and you caused this to happen, and we are thankful that you did. You are righteous. You have always been righteous. You are righteous, and you'll be righteous tomorrow. Because you have judged all this as worthy and needing to happen. Critics love to attack God for their judgment, for the way they think God should do his business. Well, if, if I were God, I wouldn't do it like that. Critics love to say that. They love to attack God for not letting an unrepentant to heaven. They love to mock the so-called, they say, God of love, who's going to, as uh, flu said in the Warren flu debate, take a blowtorch to his disobedient people for all of eternity. And they mock the idea of an eternal hell. They mock the idea of a God who would allow an unrepentant, mind you, that's who we're talking about, sinner, into hell. Critics love to act entitled, as though it's okay for them to reject God, but it's not okay for God to reject them? How does that work? Why is it okay for you to say no to God, yet God can't say no to you? That is, that is pure entitlement. That is, I'm special, I'm precious, I should get my way, even no matter what God says. No, God is, as we see here, a righteous God. And when you sin against a righteous God, you incur a righteous response. And a righteous response to sinning against a righteous God is a righteous spanking. Sin is an affront to him. And if you don't repent of your sin, you cannot be in his spiritual presence. Because his spiritual presence only holds, in this bubble, the people who are righteous. So if you're not righteous, you're not here. That's by your choice, by the way. Critics love to complain about the eternality of hell. Oh, it's so horrible that God's going to let hell be forever. Why wouldn't it be forever? God is forever, as it says here. He was and is and is to come. So, I mean, everything God does is with a mindset of forever behind it. Because that's, that's the way he thinks. That's why his ways are not our ways. Our thought process is short-term, because we're a very short-term people. We're only here for 70, 80 years, and then we're out of here, right? No offense to those above us, generally speaking. We're only here for a little bit, and then we're gone. God doesn't think that way. God has no concept of that, from, apart from the fact that he knows everything anyway. Because God doesn't live like that. We live like that. Which is why our default position is, how could you send us to hell forever? That's a whole lot of tomorrows. And I'm only thinking like four of those ahead of time. But that's not how God thinks. Of course he would be eternal about it. Heaven's eternal. Why wouldn't hell be? Critics love to attack God for their condemnation. But God is a God of justice. His nature compels him to act against injustice. Against those who, are do, who do wrong. And as the angel says here, you have judged it thus wrong. You've judged them wrong, 
something wrong must be punished. Verse 6. Why, have he, why, why has he judged them that way? Look at the verse. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. You are righteous to punish them, and they are worthy to be punished. Listen, this is not John or the, the angels or the saints or anybody here. Nobody's gloating here. This is not a situation where I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell, and I'm glad about it. No, that's not what it's like. This is not about me and you at all. This is about God and you. I'm just the observer here if I'm the angel. I'm witnessing God's justice be carried out against these evil people, and all I'm doing is recognizing a God of justice doing justice. Boy, that, that squares. That seems right to me. A God of righteousness punishing righteously, that makes sense. That's all they're doing is recognizing that. Is Rome worthy of punishment or not? Did Rome kill Christians or not? Was Rome wicked and evil and unrepentant or not? Judgment is coming, and it's going to be painful, but it's going to be her fault, not God's. She was warned, and she laughed. She was preached to, and she murdered the preachers. And so God says, you shed their blood, so you will drink their blood. That's, a, that's proverbial. It's metaphorical. In other words, you will taste the punishment you gave them. You took their life, so I'll take yours right back. That's square. That's fair. But I know what people say. I, I said this a couple weeks ago. I know what people will say. Oh, God, please don't destroy Rome. I live in Rome. I might die too. That might be my neighbor. You blow up. Might, might, might be my roommate. So you blow up their house. That's my house. Don't destroy Rome. I live here. I thought your home was in heaven, God would say. I thought your citizenship was above. Why are your eyes fixed on the earth and not on things above? Oh, God, please don't destroy America. I live here. Same answer. Verse 7. And I heard, I love this, because it's so subtle. To, to really appreciate verse 7 of chapter 16, you either have to have a very good memory, or you've got to have been reading this book like from the jump, and you didn't stop, you didn't put it down. Because what you have in verse 7 of chapter 16 is a callback all the way back to like chapter 6 and 7. Way, way at the beginning of all these apocalyptic visions. To when we first saw the altar and the people under the altar crying, How long, O oh Lord, how long until you carry out your vengeance? How long until you avenge us for the murder? And God said, Be patient, it's coming. Fast forward to chapter 16. The moment has come. Like God promised it, promised it. He said it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And very subtly, John says, And I heard another voice out of the altar. I heard another from the altar. Well, when did you hear the one before? Way back, several chapters ago. You've got to be paying attention, y'all. I heard another out of the altar saying, Even so, the King James says. In the Greek, nigh, which means yes. Yes, this is good and right and proper. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The, the ones who have been crying, How long, how long, how long? Are you ever going to vengeance? Now they're avenged. And what do they say? They don't say, take it down a notch. They don't say that. They say, yes. Thank you for keeping your word to the people who are faithful to you. That's fair. That's square. That's righteous, as they say here. That's true. That's your judgment. I want to to reemphasize something that I said a second ago. Nobody is gloating here. Okay? And and I want to draw this out. Because whenever I, whenever I do Bible study or things like this, and I'm trying to draw out from the text and, and answer questions about the text, I always put myself in the shoes of the skeptic or the critic or the argumentative person. And I always try to argue. So what would somebody say? How would somebody argue? What would they raise and how would I answer? And until I've answered every possible argument I can think of, I can't move on. Otherwise, I'll go crazy. So one thing that someone might say, they might read this and they might think, well, this sounds like God being a hypocrite. Because God, or Jesus, condemned James and John back in Matthew 7. No, Luke 9. Back in Luke 9, when um, the Samaritans snubbed them, didn't want them to come to town, and James and John said, well, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven to consume them? Let's just go from zero to 60. Shall we just completely blow them up? Shall we nuke them, Lord? Instead of shall we, shall we, shall we just you know, lift our chins a little bit? No, no, we're not going to do that. Shall we just wave holy toy? No. Shall we nuke them is where they went. Jump straight to that. Shall we blow them up, Lord? 
And Jesus said, bring it down. No, we're not going to do that. Obviously, we're not going to do that, you sons of thunder, you crazy kids. We're not going to nuke them. So why is God telling them, no, we're not going to go crazy vengeance, and suddenly here God is going crazy vengeance? Isn't that hypocritical? No. Because what James and John wanted of God was for their vengeance to be done by God. You carry out my vengeance, James said. I was snubbed. My feelings were hurt. You hurt them back, Lord. No, this is God carrying out his vengeance. And everyone on the sideline who's on God's team saying, righteous and good, true and just. This, I'm not here at all. I, in fact, I'm, I'm dead because they killed me. So I'm on the sideline watching God carry out his vengeance. Even though they killed me, it's not my vengeance because I'm the child of God. This is my angry father carrying out his vengeance against those who killed his children, me, if I'm the people here. The guy under the altar saying, true and just, righteous and good. That's me. So this is not James and John. This is God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse number 8. Verse 8. And the fourth angel, all of that was angel 3. And the fourth angel pulled, poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire on land, on sea, on rivers and fountains, and now on the sun. We're targeting elements of nature. The after effect affects the people who contribute or who draw uh, blessings from those natural elements. Incidentally, God made nature. So if he gives them, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. So this one is poured out onto the sun. And the power was given unto him through this pouring out of vengeance to scorch men with fire. Now if you're looking for some connection with uh, the plagues of Egypt, you think, hey, well, I remember when God turned out the sun, turned off the sun, made darkness over the land of Egypt. Fine. Well, he's not turning off the sun here. He's turning up the sun. He's cracking that bad boy to 11. He's turning it up so much it burns the people. But what's the point, though? Like, what am I getting from that? Remember, I see the connection, but what's the application? I see what I'm reading, but why am I reading it? What, what does it tell? Because this is not literally going to happen. There, there is not going to come if I'm reading this in the first century. I should not be expecting a day when God is just going to suddenly make it very, very hot for a certain number of people. That's not. You're reading a poetic thing and then drawing from it the application. Um, so what is the application? The, 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 the light shines, the sunlight shines on the just and the unjust, right? The, the, the righteousness of God shines on the good and the bad. The blessings of God shine on the good and the bad. Well, the, the good in this context are now with God. They're praising God's judgment. So they're separated from it. So all that remains are the wicked. So all the blessings are now being removed from the earth. All that's left is God to use the sunshine on the unjust. But he's not going to bless the unjust. He's going to use the sun to punish the unjust. Now what does that mean? Sun rises from the east. Now this is me. This is me making an application. It could be the wrong one. It doesn't matter. Satan loses, God wins. That's the whole point. But my interpretation to go in a little level. The sun rises in the east, and whenever you read about the sun in apocalyptic language, you're reading about things that are eastward. East of Rome, you had the Parthians and the Huns, an invading force that came in and attacked the Roman Empire, greatly weakening and destabilizing the empire from without. At the same time, the empire was crumbling from within for their own bad policies and, and their own debauchery. And on the outside, the Parthians and the Huns were, were crumbling and breaking the empire down, and the whole thing was just, the whole house of cards was collapsing in on itself. So I think this is a reference to that. That God is going to send the, the east against. He's going to turn up the east um, against Rome. That's the reference. I think. That's, I mean, it's the sun, but that's east, and so that's Parthians and Huns. Verse 9. And men were scorched with this great heat. Who? Who was scorched? Blasphemed the name of God, which had worked power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. Here's your takeaway from verse number 9. This happens, the blasphemy and the refusal to give glory to God happens after the punishment. This is, so this is not a, oh, look at these people who blasphemed and never gave God glory. Let's punish them. That's just and fair. But this is, here are these evil people. Let's punish them. Okay, they're being punished. And while they're being punished, after their punishment is over, you ever have a child, parents? You spank the child, and they say, that didn't hurt? Lauren, she used to say that to her parents all the time. I never said that. Because my parents spanked harder than her parents did. So you ever have a child do that? You spank them? You punish them? Well, that didn't hurt. Or they get even more defiant? Well, what are you inclined to do as a parent? Make it hurt the next time. You're challenging me. Challenge accepted. Right? 
that's when a, that's when a, a younger me hears a of a belt going through hoops because he tried the hand, now he's going to try the belt. And so that's what I think you're seeing here. You're seeing just how defiant, how stubborn, how obstinate in sin Rome is. There's not a hint of penitence in them. Not a single, hi all these people over here, I haven't looked at it all. Not a single desire to, punt, to, uh, to repent of the crimes that they've done which caused God's punishment. God says, I'm going to punish you. And what do they do in response? He scorches them with great heat and they blaspheme the name of God who brought the punishment on them. That's not the right response to punishment. It's supposed to be, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Instead, they curse the one who did it. Oh, incidentally, they blaspheme the name of God, not Jehovah, but the authority of God, which ties in with the next clause, God who has power, authority over these plagues. In other words, while they're being punished, they're saying to him, you don't have the right to punish me. You don't have the right to do this. Listen, there's not the time to tell the judge you don't have the right to sentence me when the judge has already sentenced you. You lost the trial. You don't tell God you don't have the right to punish me while he's literally punishing you right then. Now is not the time to argue. Now is the time to repent. But that's what they do. Verse 10. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So you had four previous to this. Elements of nature, land, sea, rivers and streams and fountains, and the sun, right, which affected nature and indirectly came back to hurt the people. But now we're going to start taking direct shots at specific things that are particular to people. This first one, the fifth angel, first of these last three, he says the seat of the beast or the throne of the devil, the, the power of Satan, where he has put his throne, where he has put his seat of power, his seat of authority. God's seat of power is heaven. That's where his righteousness is and flows out of. What is the devil's seat of power in Revelation but Rome? So this is God saying, I'm not just going to affect the sea around Rome. I'm not just going to affect the, the Mediterranean Sea around the peninsula. I'm not just going to affect the rivers and, and fountains of Rome. I'm not just going to affect the land of Rome. I'm going to affect and hit Rome itself, the actual seat of the beast. And his kingdom is going to be full of darkness. I'm going to knock your lights out. And it's going to hurt so bad, they're going to grit their teeth, clench down, and they're going to bite their tongue because of their pain. That's a natural reflex when you're hurt to grit down. That's what they're going to do. Again, I want to read verse 10 and 11 together. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom, this is the result, his kingdom was full of darkness and here's what they did. They gnawed their tongues in pain and what did they do in verse 11? They gnawed their tongues in pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they repented not of their deeds. Has anybody learned their lesson? Listen, this, maybe this could have ended maybe with one bowl. You got one spanking, and you didn't learn your lesson. You didn't repent. You didn't apologize. You didn't stop. So you just you got to keep getting a spanking. So they blasphemed God. Because of her pains are so bad, because her sores are so bad, and she's not going to apologize. He's mean. No, he's righteous. He's unfair. No, he's just. He's unmerciful. No, he's gracious. It's just you're not taking him up on it. You're blaming him for your punishment. God is not a modern parent. Modern parent gives their child whatever they want, then wonders where it all went wrong. God says you could have all the blessings you ever could, ever could ask for, but you follow me to get them. You go your own way, Punishment follows. Verse 12. The sixth angel, out of seven, pours out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. What an, on earth reference? What, what has anything to do with Rome when you mention the Euphrates River? The Euphrates River is way over there. I mean, it's just... You got like Rome... Look, I, I ran out of room. It's over here. Okay, here's Rome. Greece, you know, it's, it should be lower, but it doesn't matter. You're not judging me. You know. And then you got, you got Mount Carmel, Judah right here, Israel, the northern kingdom. But look, 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 I'm all the way over here. I, here's the Euphrates, if I was to draw, which I will not do. 
Thank you very much. Five minutes. So the Euphrates, well, oh, look how far Rome is. The Roman Empire barely even touches over here. It does, but just barely. The, the, it's nowhere near the heart of their power. So if I was going to strike at a major river, if I was going to strike at the heart of Rome, why is he striking all the way over there? What's the reference to all the way over there? The Euphrates was the major river of the Babylonian Empire. And Babylon is your stand-in in Revelation for Rome. John's not going to say, okay, here's what God's going to do to Rome. He's not going to say that because this letter is being read by Romans. John's in imprisonment right now. He's in exile on the island. So all his mail gets screened as he sends it out. He can't say this and that to Rome or this and that about Rome, so he uses code language. That's what apocalyptic language does. So your standing for Rome in this book has been Babylon, has been and will be again. So how do you show God is going to strike at the heart of Babylon? And then wink, wink, that's Rome. You say he's going to hit the Euphrates River. He's going to hit the life source. I mean, the Euphrates was the life of the Babylonian city-state that blossomed into the grand empire that it became. But it all started there, that little bitty territory, that little bitty land, just thriving off of the fertility of the Euphrates and the Tigris, but that doesn't matter. So if you say, I'm going to take the life stream of your empire and suck all the, the oxygen out of that room, I'm going to dry up all that water. You're basically saying, I'm going to starve you to death. That's what God is promising here. All of your, your riches, all of your proverbial nutrients, all that you have used to sustain yourself and to flourish and to grow, I'm going to go right to the heart of it. I'm going to cut off the head of the snake. I'm going to dry up. Look what it says again. The great river Euphrates, verse 12, and the water thereof, thereof was dried up. And to what effect, to what purpose? that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. I'm going to destroy the Roman Empire from its source and raise up another empire. Now, historically, the empire that rises after Rome is, is more like a cousin, offshoot, uh, different continuation, but it's not the same empire. It's not the, it's not the lineage, it's not the franchise of the Roman Empire. It's the Byzantine Empire, which came when it's really complicated. But you had like, what was the cat's name? Um, Diocletian. We'll be right back. Yeah, Diocletian. Ruled in the late 200s, early 300s. Roman emperor, right? Diocletian. Um, the empire got big and it was starting to buckle in its own weight. So he had the bright idea. He said, we'll pull a Solomon, we'll split the baby. Except Solomon wasn't actually going to do that. But Diocletian was like, yeah, let's, let's actually do it. And so he splits the empire in half. And he puts this guy in charge of this half, and he puts this guy in charge of this half, and he makes up a title for himself. He says, like, I'll be the super Caesar, and we'll have two other little Caesars. So he starts to form this little pyramid here, which instantly the church ended up copying, which is how we got the Pope. That's a whole different subject. But anyway, he says, I'm going to be the Augustus instead of the Caesar. How clever. I'll be the Augustus, and I'll rule over from Nicodemia, which is in modern-day Turkey, which it's over here. Hi, it's not on the board. Modern-day Turkey. But anyway, I'll be, in, I'll be in Nicodemia. I'll be in modern-day Turkey. And I'll, I'll set up my castle, my, my control epicenter there. And I'll have um, uh, Galerius be the emperor uh, over in the old area. And we'll have um, Maximin, Max, Maximian be the emperor over here. I have notes. Maximian. It's not like I have this memorized, people. Maximian will be the emperor over here. So I'm going to be this guy who sets up this power structure, all right? And I'm going to have my empire here and you have your empire there, but it's really just one empire. This is still the Roman Empire, everybody. That's what he's saying to the people. I'll just have figureheads and we'll split it in half and so we'll have half the taxes go here and half the taxes go there. So we'll keep the illusion of two empires, maybe make it more stable, and then we'll still have the power structure of one, which meet conveniently at the top. Well, that was all fine until you get to like the next generation. The next guys who rose up as emperor was uh, Constantius and his son was Constantine. And Constantine thought, why am I in charge of half an empire? And so he rose to power, took over the whole shebang all over again, moved his castle from Rome to um, Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, which I learned on Animaniacs. Istanbul, not Constantinople. Um, and so he set up his power in Istanbul and ruled over the Byzantine Empire. Everyone got all that? Good, because it doesn't matter. The point is that the, the, the power base of the Roman Empire collapsed under itself they tried to prop it up like weekend at Bernie's, and the whole thing just fell and just cratered. So maybe, all that being said, maybe that's what John is seeing here. 
you have this stuff in the east going on here. I'm going to dry out the, the rivers, and I'm going to set the way for a whole new empire to rise with kings of the east ruling. In other words, what you think of the Roman Empire is going to be gone. Now, if you don't know, you might hear that and think, well, what does it matter? They're just changing the names on the, the mailbox. I'm still the Christian. I'm still suffering. It doesn't matter if, you know, it's Byzantine Empire, Roman Empire. I'm still suffering. Except under Constantine, Christianity was legalized and persecution stopped. And no more were they persecuted by the state anymore. So all your problems are going to go away. And a whole new slew of problems will come. What a perfect way to end. I just got the signal. All right, we'll start in verse number 13 next week, and we'll finish chapter 16, and probably going to a little bit of 17 as well. Any comments or questions from anybody? All right, that's all I've got. Thanks, you guys, very much.